Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin Kirai. Today we have a conversation with a friend, Ed Rosa. That's me. Hi. My filmmaking partner and I have a YouTube channel, Toothless Richard Productions, where you can see a number of our short films. look at 1976 we'll be covering rocky the enforcer the bad news bears the killing of a chinese bookie obsession and king kong Spin me a tale. What is the basic narrative of the killing of a Chinese bookie? What would you tell somebody who asked you what you watched last night? It's about a guy that has to go kill somebody who he believes is a Chinese bookie. Okay, that, that's a fair start. And that's one sentence. Very good. We can dress that with all kinds of levels and try to make it into something more serious than it is. But one level, we can characterize the guy. His name is Cosmo, played by Ben Gazzara, and yeah. he owns a strip club. On Sunset Strip Crazy in Los Angeles. West. <laughs> West is important yeah, to that signal. Right, yeah. And he's got a serial gambling addiction, and he owes money to mobsters. To pay off his debt, they force him to go murder somebody who they perceive as a competitive businessman. Happens to be Chinese. Right. Turns out he's the leader of a triad unit in Los Angeles. Yeah. Cosmo doesn't know it. He gets in and over his head, and they want to then execute him for having done the thing they required of him to pay off the debt. And we close. He's been shot in the gut. And it's unclear if he's going to die. Naturally, we're going to turn to the filmmaker, John Cassavetes. Anybody listening to us talk is probably only going to know him as Rosemary's husband and Rosemary's baby. Yeah, and the Dirty Dozen. He, he's done a lot of yeah, work. Yeah. And a few of those things, as an actor, were very popular. Dirty Dozen is a very good example. Yeah. And so is Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. Rosemary's Baby's better, though. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's, this lengthy career as a journeyman actor, and he became kind of a potent independent filmmaker as he, I think, was trying to seek a way to fulfill his soul. But he's also privately got demons because he spent all of his adulthood with an addiction problem, I think, to, to alcohol at a minimum, but I think also to some drug abuse, mm. which in the end, I think, killed him from complications of cirrhosis of the liver. I think in a bad lifestyle and just reaching deep middle age, his body just broke down. Right. So knowing all of these things about him and that killing of a Chinese bookie, the killing of a Chinese bookie, is one of his signature unseen works, which is widely considered a masterpiece to some right. and an egregious waste of time and piece of shit to others. Yeah, you really... That, 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 I'd be hard-pressed to think of a film that would be instantly as polarizing artistically is this. When I think about the movie, and we have a mutual friend, Zeb, who I remember one time telling me, Garrett, you teach film classes. You want to shut people down and make them leave the room? Show them the killing of a Chinese bookie. <laughs> and they won't stay. Yeah. And that always sit in the back of my thinking. Yeah. So when we hatched this plan to, to chew on some 1976 titles, I thought, well, how bad can it be? You know, that was part of the impetus. Right. We agreed to watch the edited version, which yeah. actually was released in 1978. I could not pinpoint when it was released in 1978, despite an afternoon spent kind of hitting the internets, you know, and going down in the interwebs right. to see what I could find. Regardless, 
The movie's original cut in 1976 was considered a critical failure. It met no audience and was pulled from theaters after, I think I read, one week. Yeah, yeah, seven so days and it did. It recouped no money. It was a terrible blunder and a loss, creatively and financially, although maybe not to the filmmaker Cassavetes, although he went back and revised the thing, moving it from a 135-minute long movie to a 108-minute long movie, carving out 20-plus minutes, mm-hmm. which is what we agreed to watch together. So yeah. we've kind of moved away from 76... Well, technically, if it wasn't uh, if it wasn't uh, courtesy of the Criterion Collection, the original cut wouldn't even be available. You're right, Criterion Collection. Let's thank you, yeah. Criterion, yeah. for the great work that you folks do. Yeah. Uh, really, to sort of be um, a pillar of what ongoing cinephilia is in our yeah. present time, both with the streaming channel and all the DVDs and the Blu-rays. Boom. Even if it's something that I end up like not being that sold on in the end. I know it was something that I should have watched anyways. Well, there's the nobility in trying to celebrate something obscure for its own sake. And yeah. again, that wraps right back around to the killing of a Chinese bookie. Yeah. For all of the reasons we've just kind of had our spitballing, it is something that's not perfectly forgotten by film history, but it's way as an aside to a guy whose career as a director, Cassavetes, is way to the side of the American mainstream. And that's notably on purpose. Cassavetes, while he earned his money in Hollywood to fund his projects... And would basically work that way. I'll take an acting job to pay off my next thing. I'll mortgage the house to pay off the next thing. The next thing were these odd projects. And this is an odd project. Now, let me highlight something that's just totally irritating about it. Despite the fact that this is a mature filmmaker who's already done many features before this one, its craft is crummy. The lighting on the interiors is crummy. It's Mm -hmm. dark to the point where you can't make out certain details. But even more than that, the framing of close-ups and mid-shots are crummy, cutting off the tops of people's heads. He's really in tight with the camera. These are character studies more than they are story. Like, yeah. Like, they're, they're stories. That's right. Because I know a, a lot of people actually really praise the cinematography on this film. You know, obviously, the closer you get that camera to your subjects, the sort of more personal it becomes. On one hand, like, it, it is kind of frustrating. I mean, I, I love, you know, close-ups and, and getting personal. But sometimes I need to have an awareness of the the space that we're inhabiting at this moment. Yeah. And sometimes without having something wider to show me where we are and what's happening, I, I feel kind of like lost. Well, and there are several scenes in the movie. It's always Cosmo in his club. And it's mm-hmm. Cosmo introducing the dancers and the singer, Mr. Sophistication, played by Mead Roberts, who yes. I think was a screenwriter. They were friends because they worked okay. in the background of movies, nonetheless. In these shots, we see Cosmo in his milieu, able to negotiate the crowd, manage people who are impatient because they're to see TNA. They don't want to deal with him or musical numbers. They're there for a reason, and they get drunk because that's what's going on. And we see him placed in that environment. Then the craft problem is that the sound is sometimes a little bit in and out. It doesn't sound like it's been recorded live exactly. We don't hear enough of the crowd noise to sell me that he's actually speaking now in front of that crowd, where we see him easily and well contrast with some of the scenes, especially later in the movie, when he's dealing with the consequences of having successfully killed the, quote, Chinese bookie, unquote, he's meeting with those gangsters in the mouths of car doors or through the windows of car doors at night. So not only is the image obscured because of low lighting, but the top of the frame of the camera is sometimes below the top of the frame of the car door. And you can't see the head of the person inside the car. You see their arm. Mm. Or some weird detail. If you're going to go that close, and clearly you know what to do with the camera, why are you not showing us the speaker? And I'm I'm sympathetic with the way that uh, 
I have to imagine this was done on the cheap, probably without permits. I think all of his films were, really. I mean, he had to, yeah. That that, that was kind of one of those hallmarks, right? Was right. Like he just... Gorilla would right, be the words absolutely. we use today. He was inventing that. Let's not worry about making this thing so polished. And in that way, I saw a natural bridge to the, the new wave filmmakers, but especially Godard, mm. who fools around with the edges of what genre is supposed to look like, modeled on classical Hollywood movies and mm-hmm. then tweaks them and then doesn't satisfy what those genres were so good at satisfying. It is a character study of a guy who has earned his, his life at the sheer margin of what any any polite person would want to talk about. He trades in flesh. He's honest about this. Yeah. And he has aspirations of conveying art through selling of flesh. I mean, <laughs> right. the right. act is awful. I can't give you what I show we see it several times over with different songs that this pitiful, overweight guy with yeah. bad makeup and male pattern baldness staring into a bright light, he's heckled by the crowd while he's trying to perform, clearly is uncomfortable because all he wants to do is sing a song and nobody wants to hear it. Right, right. It's, it's interesting that, that the club even, you know, is able to exist because... Right off the bat, the, right at the beginning of the film, the first time we see we see Cosmo address the crowd from behind the stage, they're like all booing and like heckling. <laughs> Bring out the girls! Yeah, you know? right. In fact, there's a funny little moment in the movie when a waitress from a restaurant down the street asks Cosmo for an audition. He brings her back to the stage and right. lets her go get in costume and audition, and she starts to try to dance. It's pitiful. Yeah. She's pretty. I mean, there's nothing, nothing wrong with her. There's a physical thing. She doesn't have an extra leg. She has right. horns or something. It's obviously going to be upsetting. Her attempts to be a performer are dreadful. Okay, just walk up and down, will you, so I can take a look at it. You don't have to jump anymore, sweetheart. Just walk up and down. Because this is a vignette-driven movie, which does not have a plot mechanism that really advances it all that much, yeah, we can talk about how Cosmo owes money, but that's an excuse to have Cosmo interact with people. Yeah. And some of those interactions can be interesting. I'm thinking of two sequences that stick out for me. One is when he's brought to the gangster's table at a dinette. Yeah. What do you earn? How are you mortgaged? How are we going to get our money back? Because you owe us a lot. The scene plays pretty well because it's sort of pre- Scorsese ripoffs yeah. that we would see from the 80s onward if people like, ooh, I know about how the mafia works because I saw movies by this guy called Scorsese. And this follows things like Mean Streets, but it's before later stuff that that filmmaker would do. It's after people have digested The Godfather, mm-hmm. so they're open to what the, the Italian mafia might kind of be. And while these guys are ethnically charged a little bit, they don't spend a lot of time worrying about that. They even remark on the fact that, hey, this guy here, he's an accountant. And yeah. we need our money. Yeah. And uh, it doesn't look to, uh, like, uh, we've been to your club, it's a nice place, but come on. You owe us more than this thing's going to be worth. I mean, we've we got to figure a way out of this. Yeah. It's a nice sequence because they're at once having sandwiches, they're chewing on spinach, drinking coffee or beer. Yeah, le- legendary uh, character actor Tim Carey uh, turns up in this. And yeah, he's got that, that, well, that one shot where he's like, I'm eating spinach. Yeah, and, and he, he is. Like, slurps up some... He's looking like giant pieces of spinach. He gets caught in his tooth yeah. later in the scene. You're like, oh, you really were eating spinach, yeah. man. And But what we also learn importantly, aside from the business circumstance of how these gangsters run their shop, Cosmo was in Korea. Ever seen any action? A little bit. How much? I killed a few people. How? 
with an M1. Oh, infantry. Yeah. Well, you know, when we think about how screenplays are organized or how scenes are built, one of the analogies I like is, is a button, the button of a shirt. Without the button, the shirt doesn't close, and therefore it's not a useful garment. So every, every scene has to be written to a button. There's a purpose for everything that goes on. This dinette discussion with the gangsters and Cosmo, it has two buttons. It's, it's quite a shirt. They want their money back, and we learn that he has been trained to kill, so he knows what it is to stand in the face of another person and murder them. The other scene that I think is really a powerful one that I really enjoyed as the, the vignetting of this thing goes, it's at the very end of the movie where Cosmo is addressing his dancers, his girls, as he refers to them, right. and Mr. Sensation, this one male performer, this, this schlep, who's the, the centerpiece. And he is. He's the centerpiece of the yeah. show for, for whatever reason. It's strung together on this man singing and these women taking off their clothes. Mr. Sensation's terribly sad and disappointed and doesn't like what's happening. He, his mood is foul. Mm. Cosmo has to drum up the troops and say, come on, let's put on the show. Look at me, right? I'm only happy when I'm angry, when I'm sad, when I can play the fool, when I can be what people want me to be rather than be myself. You understand? Yeah. And that takes work. What's wonderful about the scene is that we see all of these performers in various stages of dress, and Cosmo is just in his element. He is upselling these people on their work and craft and what it is they're there to do, yeah. but he really seems to mean it, which both belies the message, sells the lie so they'll interpret it as the truth, with the fact we know privately he's gut shot. He's probably dying. We'll smile. <laughs> we'll cry big, glistening tears that pour onto the stage, and we'll make their lives a little happier, huh? So they won't have to face themselves. They Come can pretend on. to be somebody else. Be happy. Be joyous. We open by talking about how there's story, there's theme, there's metaphor, symbol, etc. Let's turn now to that deeper matter. Cassavetes makes this movie, and this movie should be and ought to be and is interpreted as Cassavetes on Cassavetes. Right. How is that the case? Cosmo is him. The gambling debt is basically like paying for a film. So in the beginning, uh, you know, he pays off his first debt, then immediately goes out and racks up another one. Mm -hmm. Well, that's just like his films. You know, he uh, gets money to make a film, and then somehow it, it makes whatever money back it needs to so that he can pay off his investors. So he goes immediately back out and racks up the debt again, which this time, you know, he can't pay off. In other words, it's a movie that doesn't make money. The Hollywood suits, the accountants, want him to do something shitty that he doesn't want to do in order to pay them back for this other thing that he does do, which is the, the, the his club. This isn't just girls dancing to records with their tops off. He considers himself to, if not be an artist, to have an eye for art. You know, Mr. Sophistication is what really it's about. It isn't about the naked chicks. And so, which is also like another metaphor for Hollywood. People just aren't going to be into the art. You have to... You have to literally titillate them. Right, with something else so that they will consume the art that you're really trying to make. In the process of selling out, he is mortally wounded. He had to make Ambulance. Or, you know, he had to make, you know, he had to make Con Air or everything's sort of just a metaphor for trying to be an artist who works in the 
in, in the medium of, of cinema, which is one of the more frustrating arts to be gifted in because it relies on other people's money. So to much be collaboration, able right? To to you know apply your trade. That that's a very good way to I think describe this character Cosmo and this filmmaker Cassavetes and this movie that is the combination of the two. And the main selling point of it, I, I'm thinking in a commercial level, the only two selling points the movie has is naked women are going to appear on screen, right. which has always been a selling point for movies since that was possible after censorship practices allowed it. And the other is this Ben Gazzara guy. Right, who's a star. And, and I know him from later roles that he took, in particular Roadhouse. Yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, where he steals the show practically. He does, and, and there's a way that he's always smirking, and I don't always feel that he's acting so much as he's smugly kind of winking at me, like, yeah. isn't this sort of a silly thing, making a movie? And there are other moments in this movie where he's very clearly delivering a three-dimensional portrait of a guy struggling in his middle years to do the thing that he's here to do, right? which is this odd artistic area called... Musical striptease? Yeah, it's like some kind of weird cabaret thing. I was really kind of worried for little Cosmo and his terrible ideas and his awful form of entertainment and his terrible way to earn money. But then he believes in this very strongly, the way that I have watched creative people in my own life really believe in things that I think are silly. Yeah. And that causes me to believe that creative things I believe in, people around me clearly think are silly. And I have to reconcile those ideas and still, is the world better off for having this goofball called Cosmo, having the striptease musical program on the Sunset Strip in the middle 1970s? And I guess I come out on the other side of thinking, well, yeah, but you got to get past watching it. Well, right, it. that's it. Because who the hell is going to get that? Yeah. Unless, because the only reason like we're getting it, or at least me, is because I've been made aware of this John Cassavetes guy who yeah. was supposed to be this really interesting artistic force. If this is the story you've got to tell, and you can... You can actually put this damn thing together. What a success. Right. So let me jump for a second to the context that when the original movie, the longer version, was released for those seven days in February 76, you could have gone to go see a triple feature of Taxi Driver, Grey Gardens, the documentary by the Maisels and collaborators, and this. That could have been your weekend. Wow. What good, a strange good, good weekend. Week. Yeah, it, like, like what a rupture in, in the world's design yeah. to, to not in any way be participating in any kind of escapism, but just to really be marinating in the brutal nature of the confused being mm-hmm. of America in the 1970s. There it is. Decrepitude, violence, dashed entrepreneurialism, mm-hmm. and the f- sad fact that all of us depend on the money of others to make life work, whether yeah. that's taxi fares whether it's people supporting these aged old women, whether it's this guy running this strip club, all of that really kind of comes to a magnificent head, but what a pain in the ass it is to the casual viewer. Yeah. There's something about a filmmaker who makes quality films and is still able to have this personal touch that you can feel. Uh I want to reward that with my attention and my joy and my affection and my dollar. I find this yeah. movie, I can't quite get there on all of this. Right, I'm not, I'm not there yet yeah. with him. Um, but it's like funny, because like, take Kubrick, for example, and I, I know, you know, I guess among cinephiles, it's a little pedestrian to be like, oh, I love Kubrick, but yeah. I, I can't help it, I do. Because I've seen all his movies many, many times. And it's like putting on like a really comfortable piece of clothing or something where it just feels good to be experiencing whatever that intangible thing is that makes his movies feel that way. And I think for a lot of people, that's that's the Cassavetes thing. 
I earlier re referred to the fact that the framing and the cinematography of this is a little all over the place and amateurish in a way that frustrates me. Right. And that makes me angry at this movie. Right. Whereas maybe in another work, I might be more forgiving because I think of it as a noble experiment. Yeah. Here, I'm like, why can't you iron this out? I had that too. There was this other little moment. It has to do with the actor Seymour Castle, who plays this secondary, important gangster guy, Mort, yeah. who kind of cements the double cross. Another that, great character actor. He is. Did he lose him recently? He, he, yeah, right. I think he, he has not survived the COVID moment. I don't think he died from the disease, but I think he's now gone. Okay. I know him, again, from maturity, so it's fun to see him as a younger guy with it, dark hair, all the stuff that yeah. he's got. There's a scene when we're tracking with him. I think it's a handheld camera, and he freezes. Uh, I think it's in a restaurant. And you can tell that the camera has pulled focus to a particular notch in space in front of it. But he, as an actor, is moving around responding to his job as an actor, and he keeps moving in and out of that focal point. And I found myself thinking, well, damn it, I'm really having my attention called to the fact they're making an image right now. Right. And they can't get the actor to be on his mark. But then I'm thinking, what a cool experiment to right. make me have to think about this image is being made. And this performer is ignoring the entire apparatus of making an right. image while he's really locked into his part. Right. Well, which is especially, which reinforces kind of those themes of that this is a film about film. Right. Two other details. There's a lengthy sequence after Cosmo pays off his first debt, where he gathers up his three favorite dancers. They're dressed to the nines to go out. He's in a tuxedo, his driver in a limousine. He's got corsages for everybody. It's really quite lovely. He's going yeah, to the prom. I was so jealous. I'm like, man, this 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 is what I want. Right. He's I'm giving dude, champagne to all. I'd kill to be him right now. And they're gorgeous, all of them, him included. They look terrific. Oh, and it's in full dripping Los Angeles sunlight because they're not going out at night the way that I'm used to going out. They're going out during the day uh, because they're nighttime workers. And everything looks wonderful under that Los Angeles sun. So, among other things, this movie is a story of L.A. Mm -hmm. It's also clear that this movie is not in any way ever meant for any kind of a giggle or laugh. It is completely serious from first to last. Right. Which contrasts it with other contemporary works that have become cult favorites. I'm thinking of Tommy Wiseau's Hoover. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because while he presents his work as, it's, as if it's a serious thing, he's come to understand that nobody else does. And right. he's embraced that. Right, right. With the room in particular, because I don't know if we're ever going to get to see Big Shark. <laughs> Which I'm still waiting on. This is Blockbusters and Bird Walks, a conversation between Garrett Chaffin-Kirai and... Ed Rosa. Boop boopity doo.